Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Regina D. Curran, J.D. Regina currently serves as the Title IX Program Officer at American University in Washington, D.C. Regina has spent the last decade working at public and private universities, primarily in the areas of student conduct and Title IX. Over the course of her career, Regina has worked closely with Cleary coordinators on day-to-day information sharing and developing protocols to improve communication and data collection. Regina received her law degree from Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island, and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. She's a certified mediator and has trained students and professionals to mediate campus conflicts. Regina recently completed a term as Director for Diversity and Inclusion on the Board of Directors for the Association for Student Conduct Administration. Welcome to the podcast, Regina Curran. Regina is joining us as the Title IX Program Officer at American University. Welcome, Regina. Thanks, Jill. And Regina, we love to start our show off by asking all of our guests, how did you get to your current place at American? What's the journey? All right. Well, I could give you the long version. Um, no, I'll keep it. I'll keep it as, <laughs> as to the point as possible. But I will mention that I went to undergrad at Texas A&M University, and the reason I think that's important is extracurricular involvement, or um, you know, the, the sort of second education, as they might refer to it, um, is really, really important there. And so I was involved um, pretty heavily as a student leader in a variety of different organizations when I was at Texas A&M, and that led me to really think about my career choices. You know down in my junior um, and even into my senior year, I was really wrestling with the idea of either law school, which I thought I was going to do since I was five years old, or getting a master's in higher ed, which I didn't know was a thing until I was in college. So, you know, I really wasn't sure where to go and where to go. And I finally decided on law school, you know, it had been my plan for so long. And so I wanted to pursue that. Um, And and I think I got really lucky because I ended up in in law school at Roger Williams University, a small school um, in Bristol, Rhode Island. And uh, because it's a small school, the various offices would hire graduate assistants from the three graduate programs that they had on campus at the time, which was the law school, there was a a forensic psychology program, um, and one more that, of course, is going to escape me at the time. Um, And that meant that the student conduct office um, was hiring for a graduate assistant as I was entering my second year of law school. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't know what student conduct was, but I, uh, I knew I had been really involved in undergrad, I knew I was interested in working with students, and I thought it was a great opportunity um, to sort of marry some skills, and based on the job description, it sounded like some of what I was doing in law school um, would be helpful to me in just sort of the critical thinking and um, making tough decisions and things like that. So um, I applied for the graduate assistant position and, uh, and was lucky enough to get not actually the position that I applied for, but they sort of created an additional position where I did 10 hours a week with the student conduct office and 10 hours a week with the dean of students, um, kind of doing some special project stuff. Um, And that was really my introduction and uh, was lucky enough that actually my first 
supervisor in his then role as assistant director of the student conduct office was Sean Callagher, um, who also has a JD. And so that was really an eye-opening experience for me to say, okay, so I could do higher ed work with the educational path that I've chosen um, and that that's actually an option for me, um, which was pretty exciting. So, you know, I served as a graduate assistant for two years. And the second year I was full-time or, you know, full part-time, I guess, with the student conduct office. And then in the summer in between, I did what I had intended to do in law school, which is I took an externship with a local district attorney's office. And what that allowed me to do is really compare and contrast the two experiences. And what I saw in student conduct that I think ultimately drew me to continue pursuing conduct as a path and higher ed as a path was the focus on the individual. So there was really an opportunity in education um, and in higher education to meet with individual students, think about their individual needs, their individual experience um, in a way that you can't do in the criminal justice system purely because of volume. There's just too many cases. There's not enough staff in in DA's offices, um, and you just don't have um, the time to dedicate to each case that you would like to. And, um, you know, I know the great professionals who do that work would love to spend more time on individual cases. Um, So that was one thing for me. I think the other thing was really and truly at the heart of the educational process, um, an understanding or a hope that that you can have education, that you can have growth, um, and that you can see change. And and so, you know, hoping that entering that path would allow me um, to work with individuals and, and help them grow and change um, through a process and through an experience that they had. And that's what took me into student conduct. And, you know, between um, then and now, I got my first full-time position at Coastal Carolina University doing student conduct and off-campus student services at the time. And I've managed to work at um, at a few different schools. Um, my path was, was pretty linear through student conduct there for a while. Um, I've worked as a one-person office at a small school. Um, I've worked in larger offices, um, made my way up to be director of student conduct um, at Towson University uh, in Maryland, just outside of Baltimore supervising a a team there, which was a great experience. Um, And then uh, just due to a variety of life factors, um, made a transition over into Title IX and became a Title IX investigator at the University of Maryland. Um, And then that segued into my position now as the Title IX coordinator at at American. So you've mostly made your career kind of in the mid-Atlantic region of the country, um, which is a you know good concentration of institutions. But I also think that your story is very reflective of a lot of us in that no one grows up saying, I want to be a student conduct professional. <laughs> yes. Or a Title IX investigator. That's really not on the list of firefighter, astronaut, etc. <laughs> A hundred percent. It's been interesting to reflect back on some of my choices and realize that, like, I was actually on this path more than I thought I was, but I didn't know what to call it and I didn't know what it looked like. And I think for a lot of us, it really comes back to we had been seeking careers with purpose, uh, purpose and meaning in helping professions and really weren't sure how that might shake out. So yours was in law. And I know some other folks, you know, who were looking at political science or looking at teaching or even counseling, but found their home and their purpose in the profession that we are now all in. So uh, I always really appreciate hearing how folks got here because it's never the same journey. Mm hmm. Absolutely. 
So, Regina, your story has some very interesting twists and turns to it, and I think that there are kind of three main areas that we'd really like to dig in with you today. Uh, We have the transition from conduct to Title IX. We also have something that you touched on already, which is working in student conduct with a JD rather than a higher ed master's. Um, And then finally, uh, we haven't gotten to this quite yet in our conversation, but you carry a lot of diverse and some marginalized identities. And so I think that um, I'm looking forward to a conversation a bit on intersectionality and how intersectional identity has played a role in your student affairs journey. So where would you like to start? Well, I think maybe because it sort of fits with the story a little bit, having the JD in conduct probably makes good sense. All right. So um, as you all heard, listeners, Regina comes to the student conduct profession with a JD with an original intent to be working in criminal law. Um, So you've talked a little bit about kind of finding that purpose in student conduct. But what was that like to make that leap to decide, you know what, I'm going to abandon my my dreams of working in law to work in education? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was a bit of a path. It definitely wasn't an all-at-once sort of decision. Um, It started with that graduate assistantship and sort of just my eyes being open to the fact that this even was a career path that I wasn't aware of. Um, And so that was, you know, sort of step one. From there, it progressed. You know, when I took my first full-time job, a a couple of things were true. First, the Obama administration had not yet issued the Dear Colleague Letter of 2011. What's important about that is that when I was applying for my first job um, in student conduct, there had really been a move away from attorneys in the field. And I felt that. I was in a lot of phone interviews where I was like, you all do not want an attorney. You seem a little bitter about the fact that you're even interviewing me. And I kind of wonder what's going on. You know, and I was like, I'm not trying to waste anyone's time. I hope if you listen to me, you'll hear that I care about education first and foremost and that I care about students. You know, I'm not choosing um, this path because it's particularly glamorous or makes any more sense than lawyer, right? Like, that's an easy thing to tell your parents that you do. I'm a lawyer. Um, Your family. (laughs) People get that, right? When I was like, okay, I know I'm qualified to be a lawyer and instead I'm going to be a student conduct administrator, that doesn't get me anything, (laughs) you know? Um, No one feels better about that. So, because they just didn't understand what it was. So I was really trying to convey that in some of those interviews. And I, I was really lucky, actually. ASCA was a big um, inroads to me. I attended the conference as a, as a second year, or as a well, third year law student, uh, as, as a graduating graduate student. Um, I met Travis Overton at the conference, and he actually ended up hiring me into my first position. Um, but I think he saw something in me and was willing to give me a chance, and I really appreciated that opportunity. But it was it was taking a chance at the time, you know. Pre dear colleague letter, we were not we were not seeing more attorneys in the field. We were seeing less attorneys in the field, and I think that was borne out um, in a lot of the changes. Right, that's around the same time that we changed from the Association of um, Judicial, uh, you know, administration, student judicial administration to student conduct administration. A lot of the language changes, a lot of the just sort of theory changes that that were happening in what, why we were doing our work and what we were doing. Um, so I don't blame people, but it was it was a, a bit of a harder hill to climb than I think it is right now. 
to try to be a JD and to come into the field. Um, but when I took the first job, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this for like a year, you know, or two. I'm going to decide, is this really what I want to do or do I want to be an attorney? I took the bar exam that first year of working. So I started working June 1. So I put off the bar until February, but I was working full time when I took the bar. Um, I am lucky enough to be a licensed attorney in the state of North Carolina and was very much supported by Travis and my first institution in, in having the time and space to study um, while working full time, which was lucky for me. That's quite a feat. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the longer that I stayed in it, I don't know, it just it just felt right. It just felt like you know, I was I was being fulfilled, um, and uh, and it was um, work that I felt connected to. And you're right; I had always wanted to help people. I knew that that's what I was going to do from even day one of stepping foot into law school. I wanted to help people um, with this. So, um, you know, that's sort of why I stuck with it. But then, of course, my stock rose as soon as the dear colleague letter came out. I think folks sort of started scrambling, and then all of a sudden, it was like, oh, we need more attorneys. Um, which I'll be honest with you, I actually don't think is the answer. I think we need the right kind of attorneys or the right kind of people. You know, I don't think it takes legal training to do either conduct or Title IX work particularly well. Um, I think it doesn't hurt, but I think anyone who, you know, shows good critical thinking skills and is a solid learner and has a, con- you know, basic understanding of the concepts, you know, can do it. Um, but it definitely got a lot easier for me after the Dear Colleague letter. And, and you know, I was able to take advantage, I think, of, um, of folks sort of being interested in that mindset. But what I've always, always tried to tell everywhere that I've worked is that if you're hiring me to be an attorney, you're hiring the wrong person. If you're hiring me to be an educator who has a sound understanding of legal theory, great, right? Like that's where, you know, I feel at home. But, you know, your attorney is your general counsel. Like those are the people you need to to seek for those sorts of purposes. You know, that's not the work that I'm choosing to do. Uh, So it's been interesting. It's been interesting to see that, that evolution. And, uh, and it's been interesting to watch those conversations change from when I was more of the outsider to when more of my colleagues are starting to talk about, well, maybe I'll go back and get a law degree, you know, as opposed to maybe I'll go back and get a PhD or something along those lines. But it's definitely, it's definitely not a given, right? You have to, you still have to have the desire, I think, to be in education and you still have to have the desire to do to do this work, you know, to show up every day and to talk to students, to meet students in moments that aren't good for them. Um, And and quite frankly, to be treated by people uh, in ways that they're willing to treat administrators that they're maybe not going to treat lawyers in a certain way. So, uh, you know, it's not a, I don't think it's a a solid one for one, like, oh, get a law degree, become a Title IX coordinator. It'll all be great. (laughs) You you still have to want to do the work. So in thinking about that, where do you feel like your law degree gives you the most advantages working in Title IX, and where do you think it might not have served you as well as maybe a higher ed degree? Sure. I think as far as advantages, certainly when I'm working with attorneys, I think it's some automatic street cred, and maybe they push me a little less than they would be willing to push um, a colleague who, you know, has a master's after their name or something along those lines. Not fair, necessarily, but just, I think, my experience of the way it kind of is. I think the other areas, I'm, I feel I am 
maybe trusted a little more when, you know, new federal guidance comes down and, you know, I read it and give my opinion of it. I, I do think sometimes they're like, oh, well, this is, we're going to give this the weight we would give an attorney, you know, whatever that means. And then I think lastly, actually, for me, my legal writing classes, I had the toughest legal writing professor in my school. I mean, you never got a paper back that didn't look like it was bleeding um, from all of the red that she uh, that she put on that. But she really emphasized, and my school really emphasized, writing plainly, writing in the way that people, all readers could understand. Not You weren't writing for other attorneys. Um, you were writing for clients. You were writing for, if you were writing policy, you were writing for the general public. So she really emphasized that, and I think I was really trained um, to write in a way that was clear and readable um, to a wide array of people. And a lot of Title IX work is writing, whether you're writing an investigative report, whether you're writing policy, um, whether you're writing in communication to um, students, faculty, staff, attorneys, that that skill gets called upon a lot. So um, I think those are kind of the advantage areas, you know, sort of, sort of the clout, the writing, and a little bit of the worldview, right? Mm-hmm. Um, lawyers sometimes have a sky-is-falling worldview. Risk <laughs> is everywhere. Um, and uh, and in the Title IX landscape these days, it kind of is, right? So, you know, maybe being hypervigilant isn't such a bad thing. You know, disadvantages, I think, I think people presume a lot of things about attorneys. I think they presume you're going to be pushy or that you only care about this sort of bottom line or something along those lines when... You know, I'm like, no, again, as I've sort of had to say, like, I do this work because I care deeply about students. Like, I could go do something else, right? Like, I'm a licensed attorney. If I didn't want to be here, I could be somewhere else. But but I want to be here, you know, and I choose to be here. And I think sometimes you have to justify that a little bit. Um, it's sort of taken for granted in the field. Um, I think the other time thing that is I view as a different disadvantage is that you're sometimes thrown into things that maybe are outside of your skill set. I mean, I get asked questions about all sorts of legal or quasi-legal or things that people just think are legal, you know, and they're like looking at me as the supposed expert. And I don't always feel comfortable, you know, in that role and I don't want to speak out of turn. And um, if I don't have an answer, it's like, well, how do I tell them that I don't have the answer to this without sounding like I don't know, you know, (laughs) I don't know what my skill is. So so I feel like sometimes that's a disadvantage. And, And I do sometimes feel like people will approach you. Sometimes it's students, sometimes it's parents, um, you know, sometimes it's other other faculty or stuff. They might approach you with a little bit more of a defensive posture than they would if you weren't weren't an attorney. And then I think last but not least, like I don't have a I don't have a training or an educational background in student development theory. So I had to teach myself all of that. Anything that I wanted to know about student development theory or about best practices in higher education, I had to seek um, myself and I had to teach myself um, and then take advantage of as many educational opportunities as I could, you know, after I started in the field. So you also made the transition then from being full-time conduct to being full-time Title IX. Uh, What do you see as the primary differences in those two roles now that they're kind of becoming distinct professions of their own? Sure. Um, You know, I think a lot of the attention on Title IX over the past seven years has, Title IX is moving in a legalistic direction that, that student conduct as a whole maybe isn't. 
And that can be hard on certain days. You know, I think when I started doing this work and early on um, in conduct, because we were still dealing with Title IX cases, right, I saw more people willing to honestly take responsibility for certain actions, um, be willing to engage in an educational conversation, be willing to say, you know, maybe I messed up, but I want to grow. Um, I think all of the outside attention, um, you know, from the administrations, from the media, et cetera, have really heightened the stakes of things in Title IX, um, and we're under a different sort of microscope. And so in some ways, I think that's taking some of the educational opportunities out of it. So that's, that's something to be aware of. You know, I don't, I don't get to sit down um, with students one-on-one that often and have conversations about like, how did your decisions get you to this point? And where are you going to go from here? Uh, you know, and who was impacted? Um, because everything's really heightened. And, and, you know, we need to double dot every I, double cross every T. And uh, and the process is under such scrutiny, um, and I think students feel that too. So, um, you know, that is that is definitely one change. On the other hand, my role has a different reach um, in the campus community. I've actually worked at American twice. I worked at American as an assistant director of student conduct a few years ago. I left and I came back. So it's interesting to have a different lens at the same institution, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and in my assistant director student conduct role, you know, my my colleagues were my colleagues in campus life, and, you know, I sort of worked with a certain subset of students, and I engaged in a certain type of of partnership. You know, the, the types of folks I was partnering with were um, mostly within my same division, you know, my educators in the Wellness Center and other things. Now in this role, my, my role is university-wide, you know, and so I'm consulting with a different set of colleagues um, every day than I used to be. Um, I have a different lens. Um, on the impact of things, you know, every time we make a an accommodations decision, I'm thinking about, um, you know, Title IV and some financial aid um, implications. I'm thinking about housing stuff in a different way, um, you know, potential media or other stuff that's coming up. So it's it's definitely a broader a broader lens, and you have to think about campus partners differently. And then just my day to day is different. You know, my student support. Um, interactions and role are are less than they were um, in student conduct in a full-time way. Um, I do a lot more training of the campus community. I do a lot more consultation on university-wide policy as I get pulled into different conversations um, than I would have before. So different different scope, different scope, different angle, and, and I think different stakes in certain ways. So if I heard you correctly, are you also working with faculty and staff concerns as well? Yeah, so my um, my office isn't going to investigate those, but I am. I do oversee all the deputies. So I have deputies that report to me from the faculty and staff areas. A big project for fall was picking a new vendor for um, all employee sexual harassment training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've done a lot more sexual harassment training as opposed to, um, you know, what I might have done more student-facing, um, you know, student conduct type of stuff before. So that's been um, a bit of a shift. So yeah, and, and consulting, consulting with our colleagues, you know, in the faculty and staff area, um, people come up with all sorts of different, you know, conversations and 
looking at, you know, is there discrimination in tenure or, um, you know, other such things, dealing with the pregnancy and parenting, um, you know, accommodations, um, mostly for students, but occasionally stuff will come up um, related to our faculty and staff as well, especially if there's a grievance on the back end. What did you have to learn about working with faculty and staff? I think you have to learn, again, the players in a different way, sort of who... um, who is important to who and why, you know, definitely when tenure cases come up, I mean, I have learned about the world of tenure review in a way I never, <laughs> I never understood it before. You know, the stakes are different for people, right? It's, it, it means something different when it's your job than it does when it's your education and not less or more, just different. Um, and so, um, working with folks on different types of accommodations, um, that are going to assist them. I just had to think about things in a totally different way, stuff that you could do with and for students you maybe can't do, um, with and for faculty and staff. So I think that's some of it. I think the other thing is, I mean, your age group, right? Unless you're working at a school that primarily has a non-traditionally aged student base, um, I now serve a population that just got a lot older, you know, than Mm -hmm. my 18 to 24 and 26-year-olds. And so they're coming in oftentimes even with years more sort of stacked up concerns, right? Right. So, you know, there's a lot of of background you've got to dig into. And I think that's where sometimes on the faculty staff side, I've gotten, I don't want to say blindsided, but, you know, I've gotten surprised by things. You know, someone comes in with this discrete concern. Well, once you start to unpack that, once you start to pull some of those threads, talk to some different folks, you know, well, it turns out there's a a much bigger story here because folks have had longer um, to accumulate those types of um, those types of things. So I think they just they just lead you in different directions. And then I'll be honest, the other thing, especially when I started being a Title IX investigator and I was investigating student faculty and staff, I was a little bit surprised that people were making the same mistakes at 35, 45, and 55 as they were at 25 and 19, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that was, it, it was a little surprising to me. We never stop being growing humans, I think. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And uh, we never, hopefully we never stop learning too, right? Um, so, Yeah. Definitely. Well, I think that's a really interesting lens. So, you know, we often hear at conference um, or just in our professional networking circles that, you know, people might be interested in transitioning into full-time Title IX work or uh, kind of into other areas of higher ed. Many have law degrees, many don't. But what advice would you give to someone who is working full-time in conduct who is thinking about working full-time in Title IX? Sure. Um, you know, I would definitely try to get some training or education under your belt, whether that's, you know, reaching out to your colleagues and saying, is there an opportunity to sit on a panel, an appeal panel, a sanction panel, a hearing panel, whatever those um, those opportunities are. I would go to the trainings. Um, you know, I invite colleagues to webinars I'm, I'm sitting in on all the time. Um, you know, so start showing that interest. I think it's I think it's hard to show up when the job opens and say, I want the job. It's a lot easier to start showing up when the training opportunities are presented or the conversation opportunities are presented and kind of being there. Um, I would want folks to know that some of the educational moments are different. You know, I, I had a higher frequency of light bulb moments in student conduct, mm-hmm. sitting across from a student, literally watching the realization or the learning or getting back that reflection paper um, 
and, and actually being just wowed by um, the connections that they were able to make and the conclusions that they were able to draw. I don't get as much of those over here. And, uh, and, and so being prepared for that you know, a little bit. Um, I think folks in student conduct are used to thankless um, roles, um, know that it can get more thankless than that and, and be okay with that, you know, if that's what you're willing to do. And then get engaged in policy discussions as much as you can. You know, I know we don't always have that opportunity, especially as early um, or even to mid-level professionals just because the policy conversations are happening at a different level. But if there's an opportunity to sit on a committee, um, especially if it's outside of your immediate area, I think that's really helpful. You know, the things that I have to consider when we update our university-wide policy on sexual harassment and discrimination are very different than I had to consider um, on just updating the student conduct code. You know, the implications, the number of people that it's going to impact, how we need to say something broadly enough that it can be true for students, faculty, and staff are, are different things to think about. So if you have an opportunity to be a part of conversations that broaden that lens, I think, I think do that. And then, you know, make sure you have a good basis and understanding in self-care. It is all of our work is hard. Conduct work is hard. Um, Title IX work is hard. And, you know, there are times where you will have to read, and, and this happened to me recently, court documents related to a child pornography case. And it, I want to tell you, like, if you think you have read hard things in your life, you have not read hard things in your life until you've read something like that. Um, so what are you going to do on the back end? How are you going to take care of yourself? How have you sort of instituted that in your in your life, um, personally and professionally, um, already? And be willing to draw those boundaries. I work a much more nine-to-five job now than I used to, um, but I need that separation. Like, I can't take this stuff home with me or I would never sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I sit down with complainants and survivors all the time, and I need to be willing to show up for each of them in a way that uh, that is generous and that is compassionate and that is understanding of you know, I know they're not mad at me. I know they're just mad about the situation or that that's what, you know, how trauma is showing up for them today. Um, so I think having a really solid understanding of, of self-care and boundaries um, is so important if you're going to get into Title IX work full time. That sounds like those are some pretty transferable skills from the conduct profession. But I also kind of, I heard you talking about, you know, the work is different and the work is much more legalese, much more litigious potentially. Uh, and how has that all shifted or not shifted since the withdrawal of the 14 and 11 guidances? Sure. You know, I feel like we're all maybe a little bit more on edge. You know, as much as I think 11 caught people off guard, you could kind of see where we were going, right? Like the directionals were clear. It was like we're walking down this path. The next thing that they said was less surprising. You know, like each thing after that. I think the repeals and then where that interim guidance took us it was a little like, okay, you know, and, and what are we going to expect? And I still don't know anyone. I mean, I've been able to participate on, you know, in some listening sessions with some Title IX coordinators around the country, and, and I've seen, you know, the aggregate data that's coming out of those, and I know that that's going directly to the Department of Ed. Um, but I don't think any of us know right now. And so I think in some ways it's it's – 
it, it's being able to say, we may swing wildly, you know, in two weeks. So whatever I think is, this is a path we're going down right now today. It may be a very different path in two weeks. And so how do I understand who, um, I need to pull along with me in that swing. Who do I need to get in the room the next day? Um, what policies do we need to look at? How are we going to review those things? You know, thankfully, the interim guidance, I think, for most folks um, meant no changes or, or very few changes. You know, it was broad enough. It was um, flexible enough um, that most of us were able to just keep doing what we were doing. But I don't think we know totally what's coming in rulemaking. You know, I kind of got used to my student conduct timelines where, you know, every spring we started vetting our any changes to the code. And, um, you know, by summer, those were going through all the approval processes and they were set in place for August. And, uh, and when you've got, you know, Office of Civil Rights kind of dictating some different timelines, you know, we just don't know. I think right now with with where we're standing, I feel less sure than I have in recent years about where we're going. Um, and so it's, I'm just trying to be ready for whatever, you know, I mean, there may be a zinger <laughs> in there, you know, and what am I going to do if they start saying, okay, you know, mediation in all forms of sexual violence is fine. Um, how are we going to manage that? And what are we going to do with that? And I think the other thing I've, I've sort of always said about Title IX work that I think would be important to folks is because the landscape is changing, I care a little less about the answer than I do about the conversation. Um, so, I was at an institution that decided after the, the 2011 and 2014 to keep students on hearing panels. That decision was very campus-specific. It was very much about our student body. It was very much about what, what they expected of us, what we expected of them. But we had the conversations with all the right people. So if OCR came knocking and they interviewed all these people, they would have said, yeah, I was in that conversation, or yeah, I know why we made that decision. And uh, and so I think that that's going to be really, really important, too, is just making sure we get all the right people in the right rooms and having the right conversations as soon as we hear about this. Um, and there's a little bit of, of managing fear, too. You know, I think there was a lot of concern after the the revocation um, in September, some warranted and some not. Um, and because it is getting so much media attention and they are able to, you know, sort of not fully understand the process, but still weigh in on it. And you're like, okay, well, it didn't change as much, you know, because it didn't change that much. Mm -hmm. So what we were doing yesterday, we're doing a day. Um, and so we have to manage some of that stuff too. So if you were to be omnipotent, maybe a little more clairvoyant, what do you think is coming down the oh, pike gosh. in rulemaking? <laughs> um, we're not going to hold you to yeah, these. Exactly. I'm just no, curious don't as to your thoughts. <laughs> um, I don't think we're going to be dictated a standard, you know, and that may put me apart from some people, but I, I don't think they're going to come down and say one way or the other on clearing convincing versus preponderance. Um, I do think that we're going to see a little more of the type of language that was in the interim guidance about, you know, your notices must include these specific things, right? You must give students a clear understanding up front from as soon as they're notified of an investigation, what is the scope of that investigation? What is it about? So that you can they can be prepared to respond to that. I think we'll see some more in there. I think we will see a timeline. I think people want it, you know, um, what I'm hearing from other telemine coordinators is, you know, if you get rid of a timeline altogether right now, you know, it was 60 days, right? It's, it's, that's gone for now, best effort. Um, 
that takes away some of our ability to request from our institution support. If I have as long as, you know, two years to get an investigation done, then why do I need to hire another investigator? Um, you know, mm. why do I need certain resources? So I think you will see a timeline. I just don't think it'll be 60 days. So those are, I think those are a few things I'm willing to commit to out loud. <laughs> <laughs> We'll revisit again uh, once the rulemaking is completed and see, we can see how correct or maybe not your predictions were. We had, um, uh, we had one of our previous guests who also works in Title IX kind of make some predictions. So I'm curious to see how this all shakes out. But any other thoughts kind of in Title IX land before we move on to some intersectional things? so necessarily. I think it'll be interesting to see (laughs) if the Trump administration maintains this level of scrutiny or if sort of rulemaking is the thing and then they kind of move on to some other stuff, you know, which I think some of us would probably be relieved by. It's been too many years of too much intense scrutiny um, and having to explain constantly to people who don't understand but think they understand. So, I don't know. I, that's what I'm going to be interested to see, I think, is, is if after this rulemaking document sort of gets released, if we, maintain, if we continue to be sort of this focal point. Well, and also, interestingly, you know, we, we have a professional standard that is set by a government agency that changes every time our presidential exactly. election occurs. So, what we focus on and try to alter our processes to look like in the next couple of months could look extremely different by the time the next presidential election rolls around or if there's a re-election, you know, not for right. another seven years. And then the challenge is, is there some way that you can write a policy that will withstand the test of that, right? Is there something that you can do that strikes enough middle ground um, to keep it moving forward? Well, and when you figure that out, and I'm going to say when, uh, I'm sure you'll be a highly sought-after consultant yeah, in the profession. <laughs> so, you know, just That's a small, right. small project. Well, Regina, I appreciate your thoughts on Title IX and kind of those nitty-gritty details of what's going on in our profession. But I'm also very interested in your personal story uh, around intersectionality and intersectional identities and how they've influenced your career path and kind of your own development as a professional. Uh, so I was wondering if first you wouldn't mind sharing how you identify. Sure. Um, so um, I use she, her, her pronouns. I am Mexican-American and a combination of some other things like Irish and Czech-American. Um, I identify as a member of the LGBT community. I don't necessarily use a particular designation under that, although you could go with queer, you know, just for some clarity. And in some ways, I will just also throw out there that I identify as a Southerner. I grew up in Texas and Oklahoma, and I think that that influences me, you know, in a in a big way. But um, but yeah, those are those are some of the some of the identities that I hold, and I am currently. Um, I am married, and uh, being married and having a wife is it, you you live out your identity in a different way, right? Than than maybe before I was um, in that that particular personal situation. And you were also at our annual conference two weeks ago, um, so thinking about the keynote from Tim Wise and thinking about kind of your own personal perspectives in the profession, how are you reconciling these messages of intentional inclusivity with your lived experiences? Sure. You know, um, 
I think one thing to talk about at some point is this free speech debate that's happening because I think that that is that is really impacting people with marginalized identities in a variety of different ways. Um, when I think about intentional inclusivity, um, for me, what has become more and more important over the years is um, how are we being inclusive when someone identity is not visible to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, for me, where my lived experience, um, I think, has shown up the most. And, and it's challenged me in a certain way, too, right? Because there are identities that I'm I'm more blind to than others. Um, you know, I have, I have certainly um, been intentionally engaging with educating myself around... Um, ability and disability um, and the way that that's impacting our students and the way that that shows up in visible and invisible ways, you know, and and that's something that I think has been an area for focus of me for me for the last year or so. But, um, but when we say intentional inclusivity, we need, we need to mean that in a way that makes people feel comfortable showing up in a room when you might not know why they're there. So, you know, I have, passing privilege is an interesting term, but I have that, right? Is it, is it a privilege sometimes to have people say racist things in front of your face because they think that they don't apply to you? Well, that doesn't feel like it at the moment, but I know that I show up in spaces and because of the way I look, it can be presumed that I am white and straight. And that invites all manner of um, comments, conversation, presumptions about why I'm in a particular space. I have had colleagues say to me when I have pulled together a hiring committee, for example, that there wasn't enough diversity and I said something about my own identities and the person said to me, well, but you can't really tell. I mean, you know what I mean. That's really damaging. Do, do I know what you mean? I mean, do, so my identities don't count because uh, you can't tell. I was like, to, because to be clear, my fellow Mexican-Americans, Mexicans know exactly who I am. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I am spoken Spanish too in Spanish-speaking communities on a pretty regular basis, you know, and, and, and other such things. So it's, it, that's hard. You know, it, it's hard to show up in spaces and have to justify your presence. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think when we say we're being intentionally inclusive, you should be able to show up in a space and not have to explain why you're there. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether that's a space for folks with marginalized identities or a space that is a majority space, um, it should be welcoming. Um, you know, and it, and it shouldn't sort of be like every head turns when I um, walk in here because they're like, are they, is, she, is she one of us? You know, is, is that, you know, is this, is this a space for her or is her opinion on this thing valid? I feel like sometimes that's the other thing. You know, I have been told in these um, free speech conversations sometimes that I can't possibly understand how our students with marginalized identities feel. And now, to be clear, I've been told this by folks with majority identities, not not folks with marginalized identities. I can't possibly know how they feel. And, and I want to say to them, you know, as a conduct administrator, as a conduct officer, I have been called upon to sit in a conduct meeting, whether it was an administrative meeting or a hearing, 
across from someone who hates some aspect of my identity and been called upon to make a decision that was unbiased and that did not account for their personal opinions of who I am. Mm -hmm. And that's really freaking hard sometimes. And it's only made harder when my colleagues don't understand who I am or discount who I am because it's not visibly obvious to them. I think that there's this land of what we would label battle fatigue, almost. I think that some of our identities, you and I um, share some aspects of, uh, you know, as an Asian American presenting cisgendered female, cisgendered woman, I run into this space a lot where um, because of the model minority stereotype that is harmful and exists in our profession and in our society, uh, often not being brown enough, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we think about these things, you know, the, the work, the battle of educating our professional staff members, our professional colleagues, tends to fall on those of us who experience that marginalization, which mm-hmm. is where this exhaustive cycle kind of comes into play in our lives. So what do you wish our colleagues would do or read or engage in in order to help alleviate some of that fatigue for those of us who are kind of engaging in this on a daily Sure. Um, Oh, gosh, there's a lot. Well, I was lucky enough to present with a couple of our um, super wonderful colleagues, Katika Harris and Christina Parle, um, who are now both on the board um, this past conference about about socioeconomic blind spots and about really being aware. Um, I would hope that every single one of our colleagues would engage in self-work. You know, I already said I have my own blind spots. Just because I carry marginalized identities does not in any way make me an expert um, on any other marginalized identity. Um, And I wouldn't dare to show up in a space that way. So I would I would hope our colleagues would would be in a, on a regular basis trying to learn something, trying to engage with an identity that they don't um, know a whole lot about. Um, but self-work also involves being really honest about times when um, less than super awesome social justice thoughts enter your brain, right? And they will, even as a... Mexican-American woman, I regularly struggle with my own thoughts um, and uh, and feelings about certain immigration issues, right? Um, or, you know, even as, um, you know, a queer person, um, that doesn't make me um, have any particular expertise expertise or a personal understanding of maybe the trans community, right? And so mm-hmm. um, engaging with my friends in that community, engaging in self-reflection and thought. Um, I really love, I know Katika does a lot of conversation about this. I really love the lens of cultural humility mm-hmm. um, as a lens for approaching um, engaging across difference. And I think cultural humility calls upon us to understand the limitations of our knowledge and that we all come from our own perspectives and that I will never be more of an expert on your personal experience than you will. You know, I will never understand what it is to be an Asian American cisgender woman in the way that you will. I just can't possibly do that. And so I need to approach conversations with you as you as the expert. And we need to approach conversations with our students who are saying, you know, my identity is caught up in this with them as the experts. 
Um, I think that is especially true around this First Amendment conversation. I really, really want my colleagues to approach the First Amendment with a critical lens. It is insufficient to respond to hate speech by saying, well, the First Amendment. I mean, that's great, and it may be legally true, and they may be legally allowed to say it, but if we're not asking how that's impacting our community, how that's impacting our colleagues who share the marginalized identities um, that may be being targeted, um, how that is um, making the campus feel more or less safe, um, then we're not doing a good enough job as educators. And it might not be our job to do the final work, right? As a student conduct or a Title IX professional, I mean, I need to recognize when I need to stay in my lane and when I've, you know, sort of exhausted my role in something. But it does mean that we need to say, you know, just because we can't approach this particular problem from charging someone with a student conduct code violation doesn't make it okay on this campus. And what other tools, of which I think there are any number, can we use to address this problem and not just say, well, First Amendment, so sorry, you know. I think that First Amendment default is a really dangerous space for student conduct, um, both from a overprotection and also an underprotection at the same time. So I had a really good conversation earlier this year with Will Creeley from Fire, because Will, you know, identifies as a cisgendered white male uh, who also is straight in a number of other privileged identities. Uh, he's also an attorney, uh, and so one of the things I asked him was, you know, who is this magical, reasonable person, and by what standard do they live? Um, and determine whether or not something is harmful. Um, And I think that we have this really weird space about when is First Amendment speech protected, which is most of the time, and when is that harmful speech something that we can address through educational measures and community healing-based programs and opportunities for reflection and response. And also, when does that need to come under our policies? And, and, you know, I think the discussion in our field has always been, it comes into our policy when there's a threat of harm, a legitimate kind of physical threat of harm to somebody else. Um, right. Where do you kind of fall in this? And where do you, um, where do you see opportunities for our campus to do different work? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I think as... As someone who's trained as an attorney, first and foremost, I do agree in protecting, you know, protecting speech, right? And I I want our speech to be about as free as possible. Um, But what I think is important from that, like thinking about free speech from a critical lens, is saying, okay, even given that, let's say that the First Amendment, and it does, and it's supposed to apply uniformly regardless of your identity, when does that not play out in reality, Mm-hmm. Right. When are those times when we can actually see and point to the voices of the majority mattering more, being more heavily weighted, making more of an impact than those folks in marginalized communities? Um, and I think Charlottesville is a perfect example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think folks looked at that and said, if those people looked different, those actions would have been treated very differently. Mm-hmm. People would have responded from a heightened level of threat, a heightened level of fear. And so that's not okay, even if, okay, the First Amendment, right? So how can we have that that honest conversation? Um, you had asked earlier about a book, and I will say that a book um, that really impacted me um, and my thinking about laws through a critical lens was White by Law. 
So White Mm -hmm. by Law by Ian Haney Lopez takes a real critical look, um, in particular at at immigration policies. But it's like, you know, just because these policies looked one way on their face, you know, or we think we understand them now, if we can look critically into our history, we can see the ways that they were applied to continue the oppression of certain groups, you know, or to perpetuate them or whatever. And if we can't, if we don't understand our current laws through that historical lens, then we don't understand our current laws. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think that's important. So, you know, I think one thing I'll say is just really trying to look for those instances where we can see that if the identity of the speaker had been different, the outcome of the speech would have been different, right or wrong, right? But it would have been because we live in an imperfect society and we don't live in a society that um, that truly values all speech at the same level. Um, so I think that's one thing. And then I think the other thing is really partnering with our colleagues. I think we need to be proactive. I think we know that speech is such a hot topic right now. And so we need to be engaging with our colleagues across campus in advance of an incident, in advance of a, an, a particularly challenging speaker being, you know, brought to campus and say, okay, where where do our policies end and our values begin, right? Because our policies are part of our values, um, but they're the way we enforce our values when things go wrong. Um, how do we enforce our values even when things are going okay, right? How do we say, um, you know, we recognize that this speech is allowed to happen on this campus. However, it's not reflective of our values. What else can we do? Um, so I think just proactively educating some of our colleagues about, you know, where my role might end has nothing to do with where your role ends. You know, just because I can't hold someone accountable for a policy violation here doesn't mean that we have to sit silently by and say, oh, yeah, this speech is perfectly fine with us, you know, and how do we do that? And I think we have to have those conversations in advance of an issue or they're just not going to happen, right? If we wait till something happens, then everything, and everyone's in crisis mode. Um, and by the time we figure out a plan, it's actually too late to execute it. <laughs> Well, I think that's a really great question that you ask. Where do our policies end and our values begin? And in student conduct, our lane is pretty limited. And our lane is, is this an alleged violation of our policy or is it not? And most of the time it's going to fall in not when we're talking about speech. Uh, Almost, well, and when we're talking about speech, it almost always will not unless we're on a private university campus and there's some different regulations. Right. So uh, I think that's a valuable question that I hope our listeners will take back to your campuses. And and if you are empowered to do so, start wrestling with these conversations in your leadership teams, because it's it's a valuable one to have. It's an important one to be talking about for things like residence hall signage. Um, I know there are campuses right now that are dealing with issues of flags popping up in windows that are not representative of values. Mm-hmm. Um, other issues where maybe a person of a certain identity might not perceive an action as hateful or harmful or threatening, but a person of a marginalized identity might perceive it that way. So, you know, this is a, a conversation that is a process for all of our campuses. And I think, Regina, you gave folks some really great places to start in thinking about these things. Great. So yeah, we are... Well, the tough ahead. work we're doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. We, we all went into this profession because it was going to be very easy. But in any case, Regina, we are running up into our time and being respectful of yours as well. I was hoping you could recommend a book or tell folks what you are currently reading. Absolutely. It's a bit of a personal book, but I think it actually um, 
it really hits home with what's happening in our society right now and what we should be thinking about in our work. I'm reading Brene Brown's um, Braving the Wilderness, which I actually think is really relevant to some of these conversations about tribes and separation and um, things that are happening. So I would recommend that to folks. And then um, I always recommend folks read something for self-care and that just brings them some joy. And I've been reading the poetry um, of Naira Wahid a lot in the last year. She writes micro poems so I can take three minutes out of my day, read six or seven poems, just sort of fill up my cup a little bit um, and kind of get back to what I was doing. So um, I would recommend both of those. I like those micro moments where you can just kind of engage with your own self for five minutes and then move forward. Uh, Regina, if folks want to reach you after the podcast ends, how can they get a hold of you? Absolutely. So they can get a hold of me um, at American. So um, my email address is rcurran, which is R-C-U-R-R-A-N at American.edu. And email is always the best way. Um, And then I'm happy to, uh, to touch base from there. Excellent. And as always, if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can always tweet us at ASCA podcast. That's ASCA P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Or you can email us at ASCA podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Regina, for sharing your viewpoint. Thanks for having me. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Jocinda Hudson and Alan Acosta. Jocinda and Alan are two of the three co-editors for the new book, Conduct and Community, which will be a resource published by ASCA and Akuho I in partnership. We hope you'll come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com.